after the wedding, before we met, after the baby, before the cancer, the stroke, the Alzheimer's, the fall. Our lives are marked by befores and afters. Before we ate the forbidden fruit. The old question of the chicken and the egg has us chasing our tails. Our lives can be tormented by it. For every before, there is an after, it seems. And we can occupy our minds with questions that our souls have little patience for. More mysterious than the old question of chicken and egg is asking, which came first, the shadow or the light? Does cause always precede effect? Does light come before shadow? Does plucking the string precede the note? Is there a moment between the bloom and its fragrance? There is a place where all things belong, where all befores and afters find their meaning, where all aches and all longings, all fears, all doubts, all needs and angers and regrets all make sense. All at once, at last, where all becomes clear and all questions lose their importance, where our thirst for answers is quenched forever. We have a word for the place where the beginning and the end are the same, where before and after mingle, blend, dissolve into one another, vanish, where shame and forgiveness occupy the same instant, where shadow is filled with light. We call it eternity. And we have a name. The name is God. And his one note is love. And it is the song he invites us all to sing. In the world between the fragrance and the rose. I saw heaven and earth, new created, gone the first heaven, gone the first earth, gone the sea. I saw holy Jerusalem, new created, descending resplendent out of heaven, as ready for God, as a bride for her husband. I heard a voice thunder from the throne, look, look, God has moved into the neighborhood, making his home with men and women. 
They're his people. He's their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. Death is gone for good. Tears gone. Crying gone. Pain gone. All the first order of things gone. The enthroned continued. Look, I'm making everything new. Write it all down, each word, dependable and accurate. Then he said, it's happened. I'm A to Z. I'm the beginning. I'm the conclusion. From water of life, well, I give freely to the thirsty. The word of the Lord. So it occurred to me that some of you, I really resonated with everything that's been said so far this morning. It might not occur to some of you what I do on for a daily basis, but I'm a chaplain for, and bereavement coordinator for a hospice company. Uh, and so my elevator talk is that I basically drive around and pray with old people and their family. And about six, six weeks ago, I actually had a really interesting day. It was kind of a trifecta. I did a funeral for one of our patients. I went and visited one of our patients that was still alive, and then I got called to go visit the family of a patient that had just died. And it was kind of a blur, and a lot of emotions go on and that sort of thing. And a lot of people, you know, I tell people what I do for a living, and they get this look on their face. And they basically say it or don't say it, but they still say it. That sounds really depressing. The general response to hospice is pretty negative, I guess, so... That's weird, but whatever. Um, but then I usually inform them, you know, my, my, my job, my daily life full of funerals and death is surprisingly upbeat. Um, the highlights include telling me their life stories that are amazing. Um, witnessing people overcome adversity. Uh, so many stories of people that have been married for 50 plus years. And uh, it's so funny because I ask all of them for marriage advice and they're, they all say the same thing. I don't know. It just, <laughs> it just happened. Be nice to each other. <laughs> uh, and um, even I see on occasion opportunities to lead people either to faith in Jesus or back to faith in Jesus, which is, you know, I'm just there in those instances. That's really God at work, and I'm, I'm blown away by that. Um, but at the end of the day, I think there is a toll on everyone in circumstance because it is death and dying. And no amount of normalizing or remembering or hunting the good stuff can take out the fact that death just sucks and that the ever-present force in life, you know, the, the old saying, death and taxes, reminds us that the world is not the way that it ought to be that God must redeem it. Death is the ending, and in both longing and in death, we feel the rise of the fallen world in every fiber of our being. We sense our own need and the world's need for rebirth. And the other thing about death that is actually kind of cool, if you think about it, is that it brings communities together. Um, I do go to a number of funerals, uh, and it is always really bittersweet. 
no matter who the person was or how they died, seeing the families come together at that time is gut-wrenching both positively and negatively. Um, and I used to live in New Orleans, and while I was there, I actually had a chance to witness a couple funerals there. And funerals in New Orleans are a little different. Uh, some of you may know all about that. Some of you may not know what I'm talking about. Um, the New Orleans funeral in general, of course, they have a parade. So it starts out with a parade to the cemetery. Sad, woeful. Everyone is you know, mourning. They're playing the dirges. And when they get there, uh, cemeteries are a lot different in New Orleans, too. I could go into a big description of that. But basically, all the graves are above ground. So you're in this little, they call it a city of the dead. And it's all these raised graves and monoliths. It's very European-looking. Um, so they approach the cemetery in mourning. They inter the body. They, you know, the, it's usually generally a Catholic priest because there's a lot of Catholic people down there. They say their peace, and then everyone comes back. But the weird thing it strikes you is when people come back. They step out of the cemetery, and the trumpets go up. Ba-da-da-da! And it breaks into a celebration. We mourn the loss on the way to the cemetery, and we celebrate their rebirth in heaven, their new life. And it's a parade back, but it's, you know, you wouldn't know it's a funeral other than the clothes that they're wearing because it does not seem normal to celebrate like that. There's lots of songs and lots of dancing, and it really gives you a sense of what all of life is about. That it's about mourning and it's about celebrating. And what we see in this passage this morning in Revelation is the outworking of God's power. That God's faithfulness is on display to address dying, to address bringing people together into the work of redemption, into a vast and beautiful community full of neighborhoods. Eastertide brings us this morning a powerful gospel. It's a good news of promise about death and about community. And the first verse kind of sets the tone, has kind of an ominous tone to it. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. No more. We see that phrase repeated actually in verse 4 as well. Not unlike the cry of Poe's raven, the sea was no more. In Revelation 20, verse 13, just one chapter earlier, the sea is a place of the dead. The sea is a place of mystery and suffering in first century literature. When the apostles go out onto the Sea of Galilee at night, they're terrified because the legends of the sea being haunted and that there's a ghost inhabiting the waters. Um, But surfers of the world do not fret. There will be water and there will be waves in the new earth. But what John is doing, he bookends this short passage with water. He says the sea of death and suffering, the sea of fear and trembling was no more. And then he closes with the river, the river that brings life, the river where trees spring up, the river that supplies our needs, breaks out in the midst of the city to demonstrate the substance of life will be redeemed. 
And John is obsessed with this rebirth idea. And so water becomes this vessel which conveys this occurrence, that the rebirth of the cosmos mirrors the spiritual birth of each one of his saints, that John calls to mind this idea of baptism in water, and everything comes from water. And um, Revelation really carries on the Old Testament tradition of this new idea, this new heaven, this new earth. Isaiah 65, 17, among other places, almost word for word, it's like he just is quoting it. You know, There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and now John's saying, and there is. <laughs> Graphic, blood-stained images of trauma have preceded it and have given birth to what we long for. <laughs> a new heaven and a new earth, the consummation of history and the creation being restored. The whole thing is included. The whole idea of the new heaven and the new earth is not this earth is temporary, so screw the earth. I mean, we just celebrated Earth Day. I don't need to preach that to you guys, but probably if you've been in many churches, you probably heard that sentiment at one point. The whole earth is being redeemed. The whole thing matters. North Dakota will be redeemed. <laughs> Canada and Mexico will be redeemed. <clears throat> Palestine and America and South Africa and Argentina, the whole thing will be redeemed. And in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all our separation, and thoughts that, you know, Wisconsin probably doesn't think Minnesota will be redeemed, and vice versa. In the midst of all our separation that we create on the old earth, God gives us a new place, a new city, and a new community. Uh, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And I love that the first word God says in all of Revelation He's spoken through angels, he's spoken through Jesus, he's spoken through letters, spoken through the mouths of the saints and prophets. This is the first time that he is speaking from the throne. And he says, behold. Behold is an important word. My powers of interpretation are sensing that whatever we are supposed to behold is really important. God's sovereignty, compassion, and purpose are on display. They are being made visible in this city. Our wrestling with the world, uh, with death, this long, last conflict being resolved. Satisfaction is going to be attained for the first time. Because we all know that I can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> But that's true. Uh, Puritan writer <clears throat> Jeremiah Burroughs wrote in The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment that especially for the Christian, he may be the most contented of men, but never satisfied. 
because a heart that is capable of being filled with God will only ever be satisfied with God. And in this passage, we find a proclamation of God. God's character, a God who renews, a God who is always faithful, a God who does not forget, God who does not make junk, nor does he junk what he makes. A God who restores. A God who ultimately satisfies our restless hearts with himself. And he does so by dwelling with us. And in this newness that God creates, we find a challenge. Revelation can be a polarizing book. Uh, It's very tough to read, especially some of the passages. There's a reason we don't preach through it just one verse after another. kind of jump around a little bit. Um... And there can go that are in error. You can either kind of reject what it seems to be saying a lot of the time because it seems very uh, world-averse. It's like the world is going to end in juggling blood and fire. So, you know, there's that. (laughs) Or you can kind of say, well, the world's going to die and going to end, so we should just like... Hold back. We should just reject the world and just take Revelation wholesale and just wait to be beamed up into heaven. No need to worry about the here and now. But the book of Revelation is about conglomeration. It's where God's ultimate purpose and immediate purpose collide. Uh, I loved Drew's poem about those things colliding in eternity. It's about the fulfillment of a promise that I've heard read a lot at funerals. John 14, 1 and 2. It says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Put your faith in God and trust also in me. For in my Father's house there are many dwelling places. For I go to prepare a place for you. God has promised that he will give us a place. And in the meantime, he has called us to wait expectantly like a husband waits for his bride. And that image of the bride connotes three things about this final rest and this final place. Lavish abundance, it's going to be amazing. Pristine purity, it's going to be just unspoiled and just everything that is satisfying. And then eternal permanence, this union is going to be forever. God is surpassingly great and provides for all our needs a permanent place to dwell. Because cities are not just places where people live, they are places where a vast variety of people live together, where life itself collides. And that can be hard work. And the work begins now, the work of welcoming a hurting world that is passing away. We need to defend and care for creation because of what God made is eternal. We need to steward, not escape. This is the city of God, not the farm country of God, not the solitude of God. When the writer of Hebrews speaks about heaven, he speaks about God's rest, but God's rest is a bustling metropolis. And when we enter Christ, we enter into citizenship in this fantastic neighborhood, this fantastic city. And the city established by God descends from heaven 
into the new earth. That's significant. It is as if God is proclaiming himself the neighbor of all men. Just as Christ was incarnated, God inhabits human civilization, reminding us that in the midst of our sprawl, the community of heaven is as close as human interaction. And as far as the irrevocable succession of days leading towards death, life is fleeting and precious and meant to be lived together. Just as the world longs, as believers we long in Christ. And we turn our eyes to this outcome, to this purpose of God that is revealed, and that he says, behold, this conglomeration of humanity is what unity with God looks like. This points to hope. Hope is reserved for this God who makes all things new. No more death, no more crying. Just as the sea is no more, the pain and suffering of old, the ways we've always known are no more. The ways of Babylon, the ways of empire, the ways of mighty fortresses and the Gothams and mean streets of our day are no more in the city of God. God redeems us to respond, to experience the love that casts out fear, the peace that transcends understanding, the hope that triumphs in the end. God himself hears our struggles in community and in finding hope. He hears and he answers us in this light of the visionary city, speaking more from the throne. In verses 5 and 6, he says, One who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will get better. Water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. In the back. And again, we hear this note of notice. Behold, write this down. This is important. Test to the trustworthiness that if you build your life on these promises, they are worthwhile. What he is setting forth in this vision of a city is the rule of life for us all. The promise of newness, that all things will be made new, in this image of a radiant, redeemed city, is just this radical redemption and resurrection. The promise is to the thirsty who long. God looks at those who long, who overcome, and promises them union with one another and satisfaction in what he provides. Heaven is not like the song, I Can Only Imagine, by Mercy Me, if you've heard that song. Uh, it talks a lot about seeing and doing individual activities. And <clears throat> heaven is this great city teeming with life. It is born from the impediments of a broken world. 
And it is about trusting in one who not only heals our individual needs, but heals our collective needs. And so you begin where we started. The city answers the pain and longing of death. This image answers the question, what is life like beyond the grave? One commentator writes, as we focus on our own death or the deaths of other people we personally care for or identify with, we want to know what we and our loved ones may expect from a faithful and just God. And this is the promise, that God satisfies the thirsty, that he is present throughout, that he makes all things new. And he does so by the death and resurrection of his son. It is God who was in the beginning who will meet us in the end. He abolishes the sea of death and leads us to drink from the river of life. His purposes and his providence, the course of our lives, the course of our stories, of everyone in this room and of history that we participate in. And it all happens so that we can come together in trust and fulfill his purpose for our lives, which is to be together, to build neighborhoods, to love one another. I want to turn now to our talk back, which is just a time for us to, to share with one another, to voice what God is saying to each one of us and to reflect on this passage and other questions. I have down some questions, but if you have questions of your own or uh, all right, I would love for all to hear. Uh, can this vision of a heavenly city change how we see the world before our eyes? How can we allow ourselves to be affected by these words? What does it even mean for God to live with us? And how can we become more contemplative of this? How does Revelation help us find hope in a world of pain? How does this image in Revelation 21 help recognizing the desperation all around us and inside of us? What is our response to a God who makes all things new?